0: On behalf of Beyond Trust, we would like to welcome you to today's podcast, focused around securing DoD enterprise innovation with ICAM, where Major General Joe Brendler, Steve Wallace, Systems Innovation Scientist for the Emerging Technology Doctorate at DISA, and Joe Broadbent, Senior Public Sector Security Director at Beyond Trust, will discuss why privileged access management is integral to secure the adoption of emerging initiatives across the government. Thank you.
1: So my name is Josh Broadbent. I am the Senior Public Sector Security Director for Beyond Trust. I will be moderating today's discussion. I have been in the identity and access management space for roughly the last 10 years, um, specifically focusing on PAM solutions. And I am really excited today to have our panelists with us, uh, Stephen and Joe, and I'm going to give them just a couple of seconds to introduce themselves. We'll start with you, Steve. Take a second and let us know who you are.
2: Sure. So my name is Steve Wallace. I am the director of the Emerging Technology Directorate at at DISA. So we get to work on a number of uh, varying sets of technologies, and and I've got a long history with ICAM, and ICAM is one of those subjects that I I really do uh, enjoy talking about. So very excited to be here this afternoon. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Joe, why don't you take a second and introduce yourself? Thanks, Josh. I am Joe
3: Brindler. I spent a little bit less than 32 years on active duty in the U.S. Army and finished up my career at Fort Meade, Maryland in December of 2016, where I was serving as the chief of staff for the United States Cybercom. I had a number of assignments prior to that, you'd imagine, uh, including time on the Army staff in the office of CIOG6 and at the uh, Uh, CJ6 and J6 in Afghanistan, as well as chief of staff at the Defense Information Systems Agency prior to that. So I'm an alumnus of uh, Steve's organization, and I'm happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Happy to have you. All right, so I'm going to jump right into this, uh, and we're going to kind of start by taking a step back, though. Everybody right now is talking about Zero Trust or ZTA. I like to talk about how Zero trust is a direction or an architecture. It's not necessarily like a silver bullet or or one product. Steve, we'll start with you. What does zero trust mean to you, um, or to some of the emerging government programs you're working on at DISA?
2: Sure. So exactly to your point, zero trust is a design methodology. It's not a product that you can go and buy and put the flag in the ground and declare success. It's it's really a, a methodology as you deploy systems, and you know you you take a relook at your environment. You know before this it was least privileged. We always talked about that kind of thing, but zero trust is really that more of an envelope that goes around a number of capabilities and not really just focused on the user as much. It's focused on uh, a number of things. When, when we in the department talk about zero trust, we talk about seven pillars, the user and, and, and the identity of the user certainly being one of them, probably one of the larger pillars, but there's, you know, six other things that have to factor into a true zero trust architecture. Thank you.
1: What's your take Joe on zero trust?
3: Yeah, thanks. Um, I think the way you have to start is by understanding that the only truly secure system is one you've already destroyed and therefore can't use, and therefore it's in fact secure. Uh, Other than that, everything is vulnerable to exploitation by adversaries, and adversaries are continuously trying to identify and exploit those vulnerabilities. So zero trust starts from the premise of compromise, that you assume that adversary has already found a way to get in and that you're not trying to keep them out so much as you're trying to mitigate the damage that they can do now that they've gained uh, some kind of uh, a foothold. This requires you to apply this uh, notion of trust nothing, verify everything, to all sorts of transactions that are occurring on the network on a continuous basis. You know, Steve talked about the seven pillars, user, device, network, applications, data, analytics, and automation. My particular take for myself, I think the ultimate objective is continuous real-time visibility and control. And I think what we're talking about is control of behavior and access across all of the pillars. And I think that if you look at what we can do with analytics and automation and orchestration today, you can actually employ those pillars to assess information we can gather from the others and provide a feedback loop that we can use in order to gain continuous real-time control over the other pillars. That's kind of the, the, um, the notion that is formulated in my mind. That's great. I
1: appreciate that perspective. So, I'm going to pivot for just a second and, and still kind of in this same concept of just getting our perspectives. Um, it's been a crazy year in the cyber world. There have been a number of known breaches that have affected the Defense Department cybersecurity priorities. But I want to kind of pivot. Everybody likes to talk about solar winds and the things that happen there. Rather than the conversation of how that affected you, Steve for just a second, can you talk about how a strong iCam posture actually finally caught up to the SolarWinds
2: breach? Sure. So, and and you know, it's it's all publicly available information, but you know, the way when when the breach finally came to light, it was really a strong iCam policy where a user was, you know, prompted with a multi-factor authentication step uh, and the user had the the uh, the mindset to say, "Hey, something's wrong here. I didn't actually try to uh, you know authenticate." So it was a you know all the other sensors in the world, sure they were collecting data, but we weren't really sure what we were looking for at that point. It was really at the end of the day, a strong uh, credentialing policy that led, you know uh, for the world to be able to surface, you know what was really going on there. So it's you know going back to those you know those pillars that, that identity and the credentialing around the user is really critical to the way that, you know, we we do business going forward. Thank you.
1: Uh, I really appreciate that perspective. Joe, uh, you know that recently uh, President Biden issued an executive order around zero trust and the way agencies are supposed to shift their priorities. Would a top-down cyber focus like that have helped you in your role at U.S. CyberCon? Well, I want to say
3: yes up front because I want to back out and then say that my own personal preference is to see the world operate from the bottom up. In order to be successful in a very distributed organization that is inherently heterogeneous, such as the Department of Defense, you have to have people all over in a whole bunch of different types of activities proceeding in a relatively coherent fashion but uh, implying their own initiative in order to accomplish what they understand to be the intent. But then if you look at that, you know the fact that they have to understand that intent also presupposes that there's been some communication from the top down to explain what that is. So it is necessary. And uh, I think that if we look at the executive order, we can see that it is a, it's a good thing overall When you get a document like that from the top, you know that you've succeeded in illuminating the problem, first of all. And uh, if you look at the structure that's in that document, you can see that we have a focus on threat information sharing, which is good. We've got uh, modernization and appropriate subject, which helps us overcome technical debt, which leads to vulnerabilities that we have to struggle with if we don't modernize. Uh, Supply chain security is a concern. Uh, The safety review board and the playbook are both good ideas. And incident detection is an absolutely necessary part of operationalizing cybersecurity. From my perspective, a compliance mentality will never be sufficient uh, against an active adversary. You have to recognize that you can't protect against what you've never seen and you have to recognize that the adversary is probably going to adopt an inherently asymmetric approach. So the things you spent the most resources trying to protect are probably not the things they're gonna go after. They're gonna look for your vulnerability and exploit that instead. So with that, it ties back into the principles of the zero trust subject we were just talking about before. And I think uh, from that perspective, this executive order does a number of good things, including those that I've mentioned, as well as the identification of um, uh, what constitutes critical software, all in line with um, the uh, standards coming from NIST.
1: You mean to tell me that generally a cyber adversary is not going to advertise the path they're going to take before they get there? I've, I've had this all wrong the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, one of the things, kind of, kind of branching off of that for a second, that that I enjoyed about the executive order was really this concept around zero trust coming to the forefront of the way that we're going to handle identity-centric security. So someone who's been involved in identity and access management for the past 10 plus years, and PAM specifically, um, I can remember when zero trust was essentially a marketing marketing phrase that one of the PAM vendors came out with, and nobody could really define it or talk about what it was. I think it's absolutely critical that we are defining that and it really, the implementation of that type of architecture impacts organizational transformation. What are some of the enterprise considerations for balancing the business mission needs across people, process, and technology? I'm gonna start with you,
2: Steve. Sure, so this has been part of our conversation internally is, is how do we best make use of these things and the in the feature sets on a lot of these products and, and that type of thing as we go forward, but also be very mindful and very careful not to make it so tight and so fragile that the the user experience goes away because the users will inevitably get their jobs done one way or the other, right? So we as security folks have a really bad habit of wanting to turn every dial and flip every switch and you know, show our bosses that, wow, gee, whiz, you know, we can make this super tight. We have to be incredibly mindful that oftentimes when you do that, you create a ridiculously fragile environment, that you know has a lot of uh, you know potential to to block user access and that kind of thing and, and drive the user out of the system and into and other ways. So I'd say above all else, mindful of the usability of the system. And then you know, uh, not that the, the security functionality isn't important, but it should be transparent uh, to the user, and and they really shouldn't you know be very mindful of of kind of what is going on around them. So I, I'd say that is a, a above all else one of the most important things. And then then also stepping back and and rethinking. You made the comment earlier about, you know, compliance and kind of when you and Joe were, were going back and forth there and, you know, yeah, the adversary doesn't step up to the plate like Babe Ruth and stick the bat out and, you know, say, yep, I'm going to hit it the left field and and there's nothing you can do about it. The, you know, they're going to move in there and you've got to, as best you can, contain that activity and, and keep them from, you know, moving as, you know, as best you can there. So for us, it's how do we find that balance? and sort of uh, maintain that user experience all the way through. You know, the the other challenge that we have, and and I, I think Joe referred to it earlier, is the Department of Defense is a very federated environment. And that's probably even being kind. Um, but the, the DoD is a very federated IT environment that, that comes from, you know, it, it, ARPANET was kind of the, you know, the birth of the internet. It's frankly also one of the oldest IT environments, at least, you know, in, in terms of number of years, it's been modernized over time, but, you know, there's, it, it's in all sorts of different states. And so, um, you know, as we go down and move into this journey, not to have the expectation that it's going to be a, you know, a one year or a two year or a three year type project, This is going to be many years, even looking at some of the most modern IT infrastructures out there as organizations have moved in this direction, it has taken them, you know, in some cases, nearly a decade uh, to get to the point where they felt like they were up on plane and and had a consistent approach to it. So we can't look at this as a, you know, uh, there will be quick wins along the way, but it's, you know, to get to a holistic reinvention effectively of of the way that we approach the program, it's going to be, you know, some time.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, on that point, I've used the analogy before that when we're doing things uh, like this, you know, when a painter paints a room, he spends more time taping it than he does painting it most of the time because he wants to make sure that he has his edges right, his details right. Um, Joe, this question's for you. What is the value of performing a PAM analysis on an enterprise environment before embarking on this journey for a zero trust architecture?
3: Well, from my perspective, Josh, you start by recognizing that failure to control what privileged users can do can have disastrous consequences. And it's um, a cyber uh, adversary's objective to exploit vulnerabilities in that. So they don't typically get in initially as a privileged user. They get in as something else and find a way to escalate their privileges. An enterprise uh, survey of uh, your current situation with regard to privileged access management uh, and a coherent approach to designing an improvement path and modernization of that capability, I think, is an essential thing.
1: So continuing kind of on that line of thought, Joe, from your point of view, how does modernization, expanding cloud deployments, and distributed workforces create new planes of privilege for adversaries to exploit?
3: So I think that we start by recognizing that uh, modernization is generally the path through which we um, overcome the technical debt that we have today, which is presenting vulnerabilities. The challenge that we have to wrestle with is as Steve was describing before, the federated nature of the enterprise. And uh, in my own personal opinion, innovation, Rarely happens from the top down through one program. Innovation happens from the bottom up where you have somebody who's smart enough to recognize that this newly available technology is a fit for the program that they've been wrestling with, and they know how to apply that new technology to solve that problem. The challenge comes when people across that federated organization don't draw the circle in the same way from a Venn diagram perspective around what they consider to be the problem. And therefore, at some point in the future, when the CIO or some other similar official says, "We can't afford all of these disparate solutions. We've got to come to a a best of breed agreement on how we're going to do this, and they choose one program and kill the others, what you end up doing is breaking, the things that are outside the circle of the Venn diagram for those other than the one that you chose. And that forces everybody to go back to the drawing board from an innovation perspective and uh, come up with new ideas. So that uh, is sort of a segue into the workforce aspect of your question, Josh. The workforce has to be competent, it's highly distributed, and it also has to be connected to the, top, so to speak, with a coherent plan that provides them with an understanding of the modernization intent and the approach that they're going
1: to follow. Thanks. That's a, that's a great answer. Steve, I'm, I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to go backwards just a little bit, but that's because I want to kind of combine your thoughts on that performing a PAM analysis of an enterprise environment before you embark on a zero-trust architecture. I want to kind of combine that question with another one. Um, How do you see IAM and PAM fitting in as parts of ICAM? And specifically, how do they each collectively contribute to the assurance that we are protecting users and identities? Basically, what's the value in performing that PAM analysis? And then how does that fit broader into the concept of ICAM as it relates to
2: users and identity? Sure. So PAM is is absolutely a critical component of, uh, obviously, that privileged user Sort of experience, right? Making, giving a privileged user the least amount of privileges as possible, making it timely so that it's not open ended, and ensuring that the you know it's bound is is the bottom line there. Where uh, traditional you know uh, user access tends to be a bit more wide open, you know they obviously don't have a, as many rights, that kind of thing. So it's, I guess, I look at it from two different aspects coming at the, you know, the data set on the backside and the system on the backside and and your privileged users are likely coming from one direction. And again, bounding them as best we can. Uh, And then your, you know, your general user population uh, coming in via different methodology, whatever that transport mechanism might be, but, you know, with a, with a more wide open sort of set there. So, or wide open set of accesses. So we definitely want to I've seen it way too many times uh, in the past where we've had, you know, those privileged users coming in with the same credentials and just, you know, as a regular user, just basically getting elevated over the same, you know, conduits, if you will, or the same access methodologies. And that's just, it's a recipe for disaster. So as many ways as we can bound the privileged user access and and tie it to strong auditing is, you know, benefits everybody. Thank
1: you for that. Um, and absolutely strong auditing is uh, a component that is absolutely critical in making sure that as we are going forward with zero trust architectures, that we can, we can define and, and look at who is continuing to access, what identities are accessing what. So there is a question posed, so I'm going to let both of you guys answer this one. Um, how will the DOD go about defining those PMP access privileges in a PAM-enabled zero trust environment? Um, Steve, I'll start with you
2: there. So that one's, that one's not a trivial, that one's not a trivial ask. Right. And I don't know that we've, we've defined that quite well, how the, the you know, department wide, we are going to tackle that one right now. It's, it's being tackled via the different enclaves thus far. I haven't seen at least me personally seen a lot of the policy around how we want to do at scale, some of that privilege access. You know, right now we have policy and procedures around separation of credentials and, red forest sorts of concepts, Uh, but we certainly need to go, you know, there's opportunity for us to go deeper and get a little bit better defined in that respect.
1: Thank you. Joe, do you have any thoughts there about ways to approach that?
3: Yeah, so um, I think you have to examine policy in uh, the sense of multiple layers of abstraction and recognize that At the lowest of those, you've got devices that are acting on the instructions they've been given according to policies, uh, and they do so in real time, continuously. And above that level of abstraction, you have to have the ability to judge whether or not that set of policies is achieving the desired intent. And if things aren't going more or less the way they ought to be, you have to have a mechanism through which you identify the gaps or the modifications to policy that need to be addressed and produce and disseminate new policy to uh, those devices. And that's just two layers of abstraction, but I think there's the possibility that some of that work could be done with analytics and automation so that you've got a control system Automated to modify the existing set of policies that are being implemented at the very low tactical device level. And then above that, you have sort of the human intervention loop, which is looking at what that automated system is achieving at the macroscopic level and then adjusting the algorithms that the um, uh, automated system is using to adjust policy. That's my thoughts.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Steve, I'm going to pivot back to you for a second. What are like some of the challenges or roadblocks someone or an an organization could face when looking to implement ICAM, PAM, IAM, Zero Trust? You know, I mean, I'm kind of broadly lumping them all together because they're kind of, you know, interweaving back and forth. Uh, But what do you see as some of the challenges or roadblocks around those strategies?
2: Sure. So I've been in different capacities and working in a number of ICAM spaces for about 20 years now, Um, I guess just shy of 20 years. And the thing that I've seen, I've seen a number of programs come and go with varying degrees of success. And probably one of the biggest challenges that we've seen over the course of that time is the attributes and the, you know, not just the, the, what attributes but also the the syntaxes and the you know the data quality and that sort of thing uh within those attributes so as you you want to get into more decision making you know around and we've talked about ABAC back now for 20 plus years you know when you want to get into more decision making around those attributes a uh, few people want to hang their hat on attributes that they don't trust. So if I'm giving you access to my system and I don't have confidence in the fact that the attributes that we are going to make, be making decisions about are timely and, and accurate, people tend to back away really quickly and go back to the more traditional ACL that you know they can control and they can allow Bobby or Susie or whomever in there manually. The problem is with that approach is that that gets stale too. Although it's in your control, that gets stale pretty quickly too, because as Bobby or Susie's role changes within the organization, oftentimes those ACLs aren't updated and they get to sit around. And then then you have the issue if, if their credential gets popped and you know what someone might have access to if they get a hold of those things. So I'd say above all else, you know the the quality and the you know deciding what attributes actually matter and what attributes maybe you don't necessarily need from an enterprise perspective, but what can you gather at a more tactical level and maintain them and and keep them up to date and maybe make them time bound and make them expire after or have to be revalidated after such a period of time. But certainly the the enterprise top down, we are going to have these fifty attributes and here's how they're going to be laid out that. I don't know that I've ever actually seen that work and and work well from a security perspective from a white pages. It's, it's not as critical, but when we're really talking about access management, the other side too is is credentialing and being more open to, you know, other credentials and, and um, you know, the department of defense made a significant investment, you know, 15 plus years ago in the common access card, the CAC, which has done great things for us with respect to, uh, you know, limiting exposure and and credential theft and that kind of thing. It's 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 really done great things for us, but the reality is is that it didn't catch on in the rest of the world outside of the federal government. So, you know, we need to be mindful of a lot of the new technologies, things like Fido uh, that have come out and and username, password with MFA, whatever that MFA component might be, whether that's a, you know, an authenticator app or something like that. Those have proven very successful out in the commercial world. And, you know, as a department, we need to offer users a variety of access methodologies or credentialing methodologies rather than just the common access card that we have today. And we're, we're certainly moving in that direction. The last, over the pandemic with the CVR environment that we had, that was all username, password, MFA. And the department learned quite a bit uh, during that experience and and gave us a lot of data and and a lot of education about how an environment like that can work, uh, you know, with alternate credentials. You know, and and the other, you know, on the privileged access side, as I kind of mentioned before, you know, that time binding and the, the, uh, you know, connectivity to, uh, you know, your ticketing system, that kind of thing. Limiting you know, the scope of, of what the privileged user can do. I I, I mean, I, I came from the, the olden days of Novell NetWare where, you know, it was supervisor and that had access to everything. And, you know, we have to get, you know, a lot more tight where you have many different tiers of, of your privileged users and you don't have a single group or a very limited set of a single group that can run, you know, the gamut uh, of a system.
1: Novell, that brings back some... Um, not doesn't it? memories. I figured I'd
2: throw that one out there for old time's sake.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, Joe, I'm going to pivot to you and, and give you a chance to also respond to that same question. Um, what are some of the challenges and roadblocks that you see someone can face when looking to implement one of these strategies? So I think the
3: first one is you recognize that identity, the identity of a user or a device is one thing that is the purview and responsibility of one system, but the information about that person or device may actually be resident in and the responsibility of a different system. So the attribute-based access control that Steve was talking about will likely require the integration of different systems in order to aggregate that information to authoritatively authenticate the user and authoritatively present the information about that user that's necessary to make a determination about whether they should have or continue to have access. And on top of that, the next layer of complexity in my mind is the difficulty of overcoming challenges in making that system function continuously. So when you think about um, what we've done so far with multi-factor authentication, I think Steve had a great point, the CAC, was a, a great add to security for DoD. And I remember uh, actually starting to use Common Access Card uh, in 2004, a long time ago. I remember starting to use PKI certificates to secure email in 2000, a long, long time ago. and that enabled us to implement multi-factor authentication uh, at the user level using a technology that's now not the current state of the art. We can add different authenticators, that's physical and software ways in which to verify or, or, or authoritatively determine the person is who they say they are. But in order to do it on a continuous basis and have an even higher level of assurance that they are who they say they are and should continue to have access based on what they're doing at the moment, we can incorporate information about a lot of other factors other than the ones that we've been aggregating today in MFA systems. So a truly modern dynamic multi-factor authentication system would include the capability to aggregate information such as DISA has tried to incorporate in some of its pilots involving the way that the user is behaving physically and in terms of their uh, operations on the network. If you think about what we've done historically from the perspective of our concern about insider threats, uh, we've made the determination that it's appropriate to monitor what people are doing. If we could have that information available, not from a counterintelligence case perspective, but from a continuous uh, multi-factor authentication perspective, we can incorporate information. We're probably already gathering in some cases about what the user's doing that would help us make a richer and um, more meaningful decision about whether they should continue to have access and so forth. And I think that you can extend that example that I just gave beyond just the user pillar and look at doing it across the other pillars as well. Device activity monitoring, network activity monitoring and the aggregate application activity monitoring and the ability to implement something like micro segmentation in order to mitigate the challenges that that would uh, imply on a real-time basis. Those are the objectives and there's a lot of work to do there. Just the volume and the magnitude of it is a challenge and the integration of it is probably in my mind the principal challenge. Because any particular project or pilot is gonna have limited scope. And when you have to scale up to something the size of the Department of Defense, it's gonna be much harder than it was in the pilot.
2: And Josh, if I could, if I could just add on to that, you know, when, when we talked about ABAC earlier, in the past, we always focused ABAC on the on the user identity and the attributes about the user. In my mind, zero trust is really just a larger ABAC equation, right? It's I'm taking those attributes about the user and, you know, I don't know, employee type equals whatever and on and on and on about the user. But I'm also adding in the attributes about the machine. Have I seen this machine before? Is it running a proper version of antivirus? Is it patched? Is it on and on and on? Uh, Attributes about the network, where the user's coming from, potentially geography you know, time of day, have I seen the user via the analytics? Have I seen the user come in during these times before? What's my risk score associated with it? On and on, but everything becomes an attribute, even on the data side, the data, you know, via metadata takes on those attributes and, and, and it really looks more like a math equation than anything else, but we're really, we're really just taking the attributes about each one of those pillars and that equates that access control decision, right or wrong to let the user in.
1: If my Cal-2 professor could see that I was moderating a web panel about math equations, he would uh, not believe me in this moment. Steve, I'm going to direct this at you. Privileged accounts are that subset of accounts that provide highest levels of privileges to perform a task. And I know the argument can be made that any account that has access to data is privileged. So I'm not really going to go down that particular path. But what I'm going to say is why are controls on those accounts important and what method does the DoD use today to define that privilege level access?
2: There's a few examples back through time about why that matters. The, you know, pro, to your point, every user has some level of privileges. It's just a, a measure of how privileged those privileges are. I guess we need to go back no further than the days of the the old pass the hash attacks of you know where an adversary would get access to a system via one set of credentials, find a cache set of credentials for somebody else on that you know on that device and then work their way up the chain just going back and forth. So so your ability to limit one user um and and as tight as and you know as strongly as you can authenticate them and, and sort of you know wrap their privileges the the better. That's when it starts to get messy when when things you know frankly get you know left lying around you don't want too much lying around and you won't don't want whatever that is to potentially have greater privileges i certainly think it's it's important across the board and and again it goes back to those days of it's not no longer just you know purely a you know the a privileged user versus a non there's there's such an array you know between those that Uh, it's important to define that as best you can. Again, to my point earlier, not trying to turn every security screw and flip every switch in the world, but, you know, have a pretty strongly defined methodology and and stick to it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. Um, Joe, I'm going to pivot to you. Um, First of all, I really appreciate how you made me feel my age when talking about how old PKI and, and CAC is that I'm honored that, I get to remember that. my kids remind me of that almost every day at this point. So I want to kind of take that and and pivot just a little bit, and i'm I'm gonna bounce back and forth between a couple of topics here. But how does privilege access management fit into the overall objective of uh, enterprise network modernization?
3: I just wanted to start by saying that whatever you had in mind about age, I think I've got some on you. So um, you know uh, starting with that, I think, uh, In fitting PAM into modernization, you're looking at where does one pin fit on the map, and it's one of the many, many things that you have to do. So I think it's important to look at it in the context of ICAM and how you want to modernize that in the aggregate. Um, I think you have to look at it in terms of the affected systems and how you want to modernize them. And, uh, and then integrate those ideas
1: in some form of uh, a, a coherent roadmap. Thank you. I think that's a great answer. So just kind of on that general concept of, of ICAM and kind of uh, the, the enterprise network modernization, I'm, I'm going to step back to the ICAM part of it for just a second. Steve, what's the latest on ICAM? Are there any updates
2: or, or what's the focus for agency adoption right now? Sure. So DISA has an ICAM prototype underway right now. Um, we're in the final stages of that, if you will. It's definitely been useful over the last year to help us sort of reapproach the problem. As I mentioned, you know, the department and the government at large has had a number of identity-related programs over the years, and and uh, I think we certainly learned from that as we stood this one up. Uh, and you know, really looking forward to to sort of what comes out of. There's a few new and and frankly approaches that haven't been taken in the past, I don't want to say novel because that means that it hasn't really been done elsewhere. It, we're, we've adopted what we've seen elsewhere, brought that into the fray. And so, um, you know, it, it's, we're, we've definitely learned a lot. And there's also been over the last year, some other developments outside of our existing ICAM program that we're looking to incorporate in, into a, into a unified architecture, uh, moving forward. So I don't have anything to, to formally announce today. Um, but within the very near future, uh, we'll have more to share on it. And and I've actually got a, a diagram up on my screen right now, as uh as uh, that I was working on this morning as we're trying to, to find that way forward. So I'm I'm pretty excited about where that's going to go. I mean, we we talked earlier about the uh, allowing for other credentials beyond just the CAC, that kind of thing, I think that's a really exciting and important part of it. And then just some of the overall infrastructure uh, that we're going to have behind it, uh, I think will really be a good thing to help move the department forward from the from the ICANN perspective. Thank you.
1: Joe, thinking more about you, uh, you're saying that you had a couple on me. This weekend, my kids were, uh, we took them camping and my oldest son is into music now. And we were in the truck and he's like, hey, dad, have you heard of this awesome band called Coldplay. They're amazing. And I just looked at him and was like, no, you, you don't get to try to introduce me to Coldplay. This is not a thing. Um, so I have been feeling my age this weekend. But kind of speaking of feeling your age, seeing Zero Trust and ICAM come to the forefront of the enterprise network modernization, what is your perspective of how those things correlate? And also, what it looks like from your perspective, having seen these concepts get introduced, uh, and now here we are talking about how they're absolutely a necessity uh, to anything that we're going to do.
3: Thanks, um, i sorry, Steve uh, and Josh. I got a, I got distracted thinking about your comment about age again, and I have to tell you, you know, if Coldplay is your example, I still got it on you because my example is Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd. So, to your question. I think if I were to, I mentioned a Venn diagram before. If I were to draw a Venn diagram of what we're discussing, I would start with a box representing the universe. And somewhere within it, I would have a big circle that represents the Department of Defense's information networks, the DODEN. And then within that, a circle representing zero trust, the philosophy that we're trying to apply or the principles through which we're trying to make that DODEN more resilient. And then within that, iCAM representing one of the
1: essential ways that we're trying to achieve that objective. Awesome. So, pivoting to Steve for just a second, um, what is the latest on enterprise network modernization? Is there any updates there? Um, I know I asked you about iCAM earlier, but this
2: is slightly broader in that in that scope. We are constantly evolving. So, so across the board, you know, one of the bigger things that we have out there right now. Uh, and will be one of our bigger initiatives over the next many months um, is a project called Thunderdome, uh, which is really the employing of a number of these zero trust concepts. Uh, that, and, and ICAM underpins all of that and is, you know, one of the relying services that that we need to be there. But that is going to change a number of things across the board. You know, when we talk about network modernization, the reality is, is the game has changed, not just in the past 10 years, we, t- we tend to go back 10, 11 years, whatever it is, uh, and talk about how data started moving around, right? When when the department started adopting a lot more cloud services, the data sort of, it was dispersed. Prior to that, we had Nippernet, which was, you know, our own unclassified bubble where the data and the users both were resident. And then the data started moving about, and then slowly the users became more mobile Uh, And then here we come 2020 and the users become far more mobile. And, you know, the traditional way of backhauling that traffic in via VPN to turn around and send it back out in a different direction isn't conducive to a good user experience. And it frankly doesn't add a lot of, you know, security benefits from that perspective. So, So Thunderdome is our first step towards working to address that, you know, making the network where the user sits less of a factor and really pushing those boundaries towards the towards the endpoint as well as towards the data set. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, network modernization, the first thing when you said it, you know, Thunderdome is really what comes to mind for us is is really the realization that Frankly, the game has changed, if you will, uh, and that we need a different approach uh, to the way that we handle IT in general. And that both from the security side of things, but also from the network and infrastructure routing perspective and and how we integrate in with, you know, other commercial providers, as I talked about that data moving around, you know, having rather than just you know cables running from one cage to another when we integrate in with with uh, other providers how do we better mesh the networks in a in a more secure fashion to make the network overall much more resilient and that's that's you you're going to see a, some significant uh changes in that respect over the coming years with the way that the department approaches it
3: if i could dovetail onto that josh i think absolutely You know, one of the things that uh, connects modernization to the Venn diagram I talked about before here is the fact that it really is an overlay to the entire thing. We're talking about having to modernize, as Steve said, in order to evolve. So we are continuously improving or extending the capability we have, but we also have to sustain all of the capability that we've developed in the past so modernization becomes the method not just for improvement or extension of our capabilities but also just for the fundamental sustainment of our capabilities because we cannot afford to purchase whole scale a replacement solution for the one which is no longer cutting edge Uh, If you look at an organization the size of the DOD or or the Army or any of the services or even any large size organization within the services, you can't afford the bill to replace all of that system across the entire organization with, with new cutting edge stuff. So you have to continuously modernize
1: in order to sustain. Thanks, Joe. I absolutely agree with that. Also, I'm really glad that Steve brought up Thunderdome, just because I feel like there's about 14 Mad Max gifts I should be throwing in right here. Uh, I'm not necessarily supposed to do that, but speaking of Thunderdome, and by the way, as a side note, I really wish we would get to vote on what we decide to call new things. But apparently, this is called SASE networking. Um, that is S A S E secure um, secure access that service. That. Access? Yeah, Yes, that's right. Um, so from now on, we really need to like set out some sort of policy to vote on these things, because I'm I'm not going to talk about sassy networking for the next three years. I'm just really not. But kind of as we talk about that and we talk about Thunderdome and the way that's going to work. Um, and Joe, to your point about not being able to, you know, forklift, replace to stay on the cutting edge, right? When we're talking about these things that are ultimately evolutions of our current network landscape, what do we look for in capabilities for uh, these types of programs? What are you looking for as far as, you know, what 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 defines that SASE network for you and,
2: and the project that you're looking to do in Thunderdog? SASE is definitely a, a core capability in there. That was one of the things that as we as we started looking, you know, about a, a little over a year ago. My team published our tech watch list for, for 2021, FY 2021. And uh we talked about perimeter modernization or perimeter evolution, I think is what we termed it in there. And and what was behind that without actually naming it was the thought of, hey, what the sassy thing. And, and I had the same reaction when I first uh I was first talking to someone and they said, well, we have this sassy product. And I didn't know if they just meant, you know, it was really cool and, and smart or whatever, or, or what the heck the sassy thing meant. So I had to go and often do some research. But where was this emerging, you know, area of of these sassy capabilities, and, and how can that improve the department? And it really kind of became core to what we were looking at going forward. And the idea was was really that, you know, as I mentioned before, a lot of times we we backhaul traffic into the network just to turn around and send it out. And and I give the example of that's that's almost like telling someone to go from DC to Chicago by way of Miami. Right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna funnel you all the way down there to turn you around and, and send you in a different direction. Uh, it doesn't make for a very unless you really enjoy road trips. Uh, it doesn't make for a good uh, journey, and and the same is true for IT. But that's where we think that SASE can come in, and it's really that that meshing of uh, VPN like capabilities with some of the greater controls and 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 access rigor um, that we talk about with zero trust. That's really where we see SASE coming together now in that product space. We see vendors that they fall into that category, but they accomplish it in many different ways. And, and to be frank, that's why we were less prescriptive when we went out on the street with Thunderdome, um, because we didn't. We didn't want the government to very, you know, be deeply prescriptive as sometimes we are and say we want X, Y, Z. We really wanted to see what industry comes back with. And, and we're really excited, you know, uh, about that opportunities to see how, you know, we can work with industry on that and going forward. So certainly more to come. The teams are we're assembling the team, the uh, you know things are very much moving forward uh, in that space, and there's not just within DISA a lot of excitement around the Department of Defense around Thunderdome. There were there were already several of the services dabbling in that space. This is from at least from what I understand the department's first big foray uh, kind of into this space. So we are we are over the moon excited about it. Thank you for that. Also,
1: um, in reference to your travel example, I would like to introduce you to every airline layover ever. Um, So just <laughs> yeah you know, it, as you were saying that. And, um, and real
2: quick on the Mad Max thing, you do realize that Mad Max actually took place in 2021, right? So so right. that may have been a factor in some of the naming, just, <laughs> just saying.
1: Okay. Joe, let's get your thoughts real quick here uh, on that same topic of Thunderdome and, and the secure access service edge. Uh, I want to do that real quick where I've actually just looked down and realized that we're getting really close on time. So I also want to give you guys a couple of minutes each to leave us with some parting thoughts. So, Joe, real quick, your thoughts on that particular form of modernization.
3: Yeah. So, uh, Steve mentioned that SASE is one of the things that they're looking for in the um, Thunderdome effort. And along with that, you'll see in the documentation they've put out, it's also software-defined wire networking containerized uh, security solutions analytics uh, and implementation of the dod Comply to connect program and implementation of the NICAM solution and uh, with the analytics the ability to provide uh, defensive cyber operations to protect and secure data so those things function in the aggregate to produce this capability that they're calling Thunderdome that really uh, helps redefine the way we would do security at the edge and what we think of when we think of where the edge is. In fact, I think this is an opportunity for the Department of Defense to significantly shift the paradigm for its definition of the perimeter. And we kind of had to do this anyway over the course of the last couple of years in particular as... COVID required us to push a lot more people out to work from home. So we had to put out VPNs to bring them back into the network so that they could be actually inside the perimeter of the of the Doden. So now the Doden perimeter actually includes people's houses. And we've uh, had an increasing rate of adoption of uh, government and commercial cloud solutions. So DOD's data is now outside the location that would have historically considered to be the perimeter of the dome. So the, the way that the, um, uh, requirement is constructed for Thunderdome, you essentially are bringing both of those areas inside the perimeter again, uh, with a, with a new
1: innovative state of the art solution. So that's kind of the way I think about it, Josh. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. Um, and I'll turn it right back around to you real quick. What is, uh, maybe a closing thought or two you want to leave this group with?
3: Yeah. So um, I think that innovation starts from the bottom up, but you got to have coherent direction from the top down to manage it. And the scope of the problem is so vast that the solution is going to require integration of a wide number of
2: different capabilities. Awesome. Thank
1: you. Same question to Steve.
2: Sure. So the totally agree with Joe. It's it's not just a, it can't be directed downward. The the folks across the board, We we have a, an amazing group of individuals that are deeply talented that really we need to make sure that their voices get heard, you know, as we're moving forward, they're seeing a lot of this stuff real time and, and where, you know, some of our strengths and weaknesses are. So absolutely innovation, it it comes from the bottom up, but really excited about what we are on the precipice of with respect to ICAM and and with respect to, you know, Thunderdome and, and and where this is all going, it's, I've had the privilege of being part of, you know, many different programs over the years. And, and these are the ones that uh, I think are really going to set us apart and, and set us forward for the next, you know, decade plus. So thanks all for for having me. Uh, I've really appreciated the time, Josh and, and, and Joe. Good to see you again, Joe. Thank you. So I was going to say real quick, kind of the last thought that I wanted to leave people with
1: is, notice how central PAM is in all of these conversations and pillars. And if, if that's a conversation that you're beginning to have, we would absolutely love to continue that conversation. With that, I'm going to turn it back over to Kerasoft.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on how Kerasoft and Beyond Trust can help strengthen your agency's resilience against cyber threats, please visit www.caresoft.com or email us at iis at Thanks again for listening and have a great day.